Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Hello. I, I think, first of all, uh, as a way of sort of saying thank you for everybody coming, I am amazed at the amount of talent in the audience right now. <laughs> I mean, it's, this, this is a not only beautiful collection of people, but a really talented collection of people. And I'm, I'm very happy that, uh, that you're all here. Very pleased everybody came out. Thank you very much. It means a lot. Uh, Fifteen years ago, uh, we were uh, a bunch of punk rock kids uh, and who thought that we knew all of the answers because, quite frankly, we did. Uh, and, uh, and Tom and I would spend many a nights uh, together venting and ranting and drinking and saying things like, if only they would listen to us, uh, the, the world would be a better place. So we decided to make them listen to us, and uh, one day, I, I'd like to say on a whim, but that's not really true, but seemingly on a whim, we decided to form a publishing company. And I often say that um, Henry Rollins was a little bit of our inf uh, you know, model. I mean, he started a publishing company, and um, like, that's possible, let's do it. So we decided that we were going to go ahead and do that. So we, we did. We got some ISBN numbers, we got some, uh, got some contacts, and we started publishing books. Uh, Although the real sort of genesis of it was we had this idea to write a book. Uh, and we had at the time been sort of doing a lot of things creatively together. We, were, we, we sold a, a TV show that never obviously got made for like $100 or something ridiculous. And, uh, although we were in Beverly Hills and the guy was like, this could be your start. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and it and, wasn't, actually. Uh, but I really remember being like, oh my god, this is really happening. This guy is saying this to me. And, like, and, and looking at Tom, he's like, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> like, uh, 
but uh, you know, we, we we ran into a lot of people who uh, who were not very sympathetic to the fact that we thought that we knew what we were doing, and or that we thought that we could do things better than everybody else. Uh, and a lot of people just sort of said, "Well, what have you done already?" Or what you know, show like, what what have you done that I I've heard of? That was a big and, refrain. And frankly, we hadn't done anything that anybody heard of. <laughs> um, so we decided to make something that you know would be in essence a big business card, like something that we could carry around and say, oh, we've done this. So we decided in bombastic fashion to write a book. Um, and for some reason, we were really on a Pulp Fiction kick. Like we liked, we, we discovered these Dell mapbacks. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they were, you know, they were done up in 1940 and they all had very lurid art. They had very provocative titles and they had maps on the back cover. My favorite, of course, uh, in the series was Eisenhower was my boss, which had a war, a map of uh, Eisenhower's war <laughs> cruising through Europe. But, um, so we decided to emulate that. Like we thought like this is pretty decent. This is a pretty good, you know, format to work with. And we, we had a certain fondness for it. So we thought like, let's, let's go with that. Let's see what we can do with this concept. It also helped that when we, when we, when we, when we first said like, hey, let's write a book, um, we, we bounced off ideas. And in typical fashion of, of, of kids with too much time on their hands, we, it, it started to escalate. It was like, oh, we could do this, and we could do this. And all of a sudden, it was like, let's do, let's, let's film a webisode thing, and let's, you know, let's pitch this as an interactive game, and let's do this and this. Yeah, that, this is before we had children. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, in fact, the last time that Tom and I were here in Skylight was probably 14 years ago, and well, oh, hold on, let's be fair. The last time we were in Skylight in this, in oh, this yeah, role, yes, of course, we've I mean, been we're, in Skylight since. Just uh, yes. to be clear, I would, I would say several times. <laughs> Uh, but uh, the last time we were behind the microphones, uh, you know, instead of bringing lots of wine and food, which is uh, is what you do when you age gracefully, uh, we 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 brought a computer and uh, and and we, you know we had done this whole multimedia thing to go with the reading and. Uh, uh, I don't know really how successful that was, right. but uh, but you know that's the kind of thing that we were we were doing. It was a CRT screen even? Yes, and exactly, it was very heavy. It was very heavy, uh, but we were very strong. But we did, we did, and because in, in in that kind of like mode, we the first book that we did by the balls, obviously we're over here. We we put that out online, like we gave it away. We put it out. We had a website, uglytown.com, and we put serialized. And we do it every day. We every week. Every week, week I think. We we put yeah. a new chapter up and. Um, I do think there's a Publishers Weekly article out there that says we were the first to do that, which uh, still I'm like, you know, feather in our cap and all that kind of stuff that, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, there weren't blogs back then. Yes, <laughs> right. Uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was more of a challenge. But, in, you know, in, in thinking about what the book should be about, um, we, 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 the bigger the idea got, the more we realized that, uh, that we were sort of competing with this ambition. And then instead we wanted to figure out a way to harness the ambition. And so instead of trying to bite off this giant thing that we couldn't quite get our arms around, we said, well, let's, write, let's, let's just write this sort of throwaway book, this kind of Pulp Fiction-y thing. Uh, you know, let, and let's design the whole thing. Let's make it an artifact. Let's make it something that is that that fits into the world that we 
imagine, that we want to live in, and that we sort of think that is, is cool. Uh, and, and in a weird way, the moment that we, that we clicked onto that, it, it set us free. Like, we were no longer thinking about, like, how this has to be the greatest American novel. We were starting to say things like, well, should it really be that bad? I mean, we want people to kind of buy this, right? The, I mean, the initial concept was it would be a bad novel. And as we... <laughs> And as we progressed, we realized that was, you know, probably not the best idea we've ever had. So uh, we scaled it back and actually tried it to try to, to do a good job. And and um, like a lot of people ask us set about, the bar low, that's people. Right. That's the that's, that's right. the lesson here. Expectations minimal. But um, a lot of people ask us like how we how how it is writing with somebody else, and it was actually pretty refreshing because I could I could write something and and send it to Jim and. Like, and it wasn't so much like we were, like, you know, I was like, oh, he's, he's never going to be able to top this. But I was trying to entertain him. Like, like he's never going to believe what I, like, this is a great scene. Check this out. And vice versa, when I would, like, when he would send me something, I couldn't wait to read it. And I couldn't wait to crack it open and be wildly entertained by what he threw down on the page. So it was a wondrous back and forth collaboration that um, I'm, I'm pleased to say still, still exists. Well, and yeah, I mean, the, the, there was this sense that, you know, it was like writing with an editor, sort of, you know, in, like in the process, we were able to sort of like go back and forth and, uh, but more than sort of like writing with sort of somebody who could correct, uh, you know, each other or something like that, it, it gave us this ability to be totally off the wall crazy because, because it was like, the job of of sort of dialing it back wasn't on our individual shoulders. It was sort of like, you know, I, I would sort of try to push it far and see, you know, if Tom was sort of like, that's a little too far. And then Tom would try to sort of one-up me. Okay, he's going to push it a little bit far. And then I would sort of try to dial it back. And I think that it, it you know, to the... I mean, LA Weekly called it drunken plotting, which uh, is not entirely incorrect, I, I but... I uh, can't argue with that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, I th I'd like to think even 15 years later that it sort of maintains this, this sense of sort of spontaneity and, and, and madness that, uh, that I think is, is kind of cool. And it was really interesting to kind of come back to it and, and produce new material in this Ben Drake universe because I hadn't read it for probably 12 years. Um, and so part of, like, you know, one of the things we had to do to a popular term that's come out is retcon. We had to kind of retcon Ben Drake's life. And to do that, we, we had to review the material. And in reading it, I found myself being more entertained than I thought I would be. Um, I, <laughs> We're I harsh critics. Of, right. I kind of had that, like, well, yeah, I wrote that 15. That's not going to be very good. But it was actually, I actually enjoyed it much more than I thought that I would. It stood up to the test of time, and it didn't feel dated. And I think part of that is the way that we wrote it in this kind of, like, contemporary yet throwback period. It has, it has a really, one of our reviewers uh, called it fiction time, which I, we've appropriated, which I think really fits. It, it exists when it exists. Uh, so you can read it now and it still plays, oddly enough. Um, and I, 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 enjoyed, I enjoyed revisiting that. There, you know, there's, uh, you know, there have been people who sort of call it uh, sort of a throwback or, or, or a pastiche. The book takes place in this fictional town called Testacy City, which is about 100 miles north of Las Vegas, as we imagine it. Uh, and uh, and there's something about it where everything sort of feels 
uh, like cliche noirish. I mean, uh, you know, the the private investigator Ben Drake dresses in a suit. He wears a fedora. He drives an old beat up car. Uh, and and you know and all of the all of the bad guys are like you know Dick Tracy gangsters. They're all like, see, you know, well. um, small tooth Kelly, small tooth Kelly, uh, 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 Manny the Rose Flores, the Herman the German, yes, one of my favorites, um, <laughs> Trout Mathers, Trout Mathers, yeah. How and but but the goal was never to sort of write a '40s novel uh, and to be accurate to that, or, or 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 for that matter, to sort of like somehow be accurate to the modern day times. We were just, I mean, just out of our mind. I mean, that's really <laughs> what it boils down to. Is we and 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 I think that that's that's what we were trying to sort of capture on the page. Is just this kind of freedom and in, in, in craziness uh, and. I, I, I agree with Tom. I think that's what largely, sort of, when when we revisited it, kind of made still made sense to a certain way. Uh, and then the real joy of Akashic uh, doing this new edition was we wanted to figure out a way to kind of read. Do everything, but not sort of George Lucas it, if you will. Um, George isn't in the crowd, is he? Uh, so, so we decided to take all of the stuff that we had written, which were the the first two novels, uh, about three or four short stories, uh, not, not, and they don't all feature Ben Drake. Some of them feature other, you know, minor characters that moved in and out of the stories that we wrote. You know, the Ben Drake universe, we kind of laughingly call it. Uh, and we arrange them chronologically, uh, so that so that e I mean chronologically to their e events in in the timeline rather than in how we wrote them, uh, and that sort of allowed us to sort of say if you know we talk to each other if we are up for it, can we do this again? Can we you know can we go back to this world? And even though we have jobs and we have kids and we have all this other responsibilities, like you know can we write two new stories? And uh, well, we did. We wrote them. Uh, we wrote one that, be, that takes place <clears throat> at the beginning of uh, before all the stories, all the events in Five Shots and a Funeral. It's kind of the uh, history of Ben Drake, the origin of Ben Drake. The origin. Everyone loves a good origin story, and uh, an issue number one. And uh, this Our is it. Our comics, yeah, uh, influence right. showing through. Um, and this is uh, heavily features Ben Drake's wife, who's only mentioned in By the Balls, and how she met her untimely death. And we deal with that. Um, and kind of introduce, and, and Ben's always been a flawed character, so this kind of sets him up as why he's so flawed. Um, and then we wrote a postscript story, uh, Across the Line, which is kind of an answer to all the events that set up in By the Balls and, and really kind of a, a echo to the story that we wrote specifically for Skylight 14 years ago called A Punch in the Gut and a Bag Full of Oranges, which is also in the book. Um, and it features, like, that, that particular story set up some questions that we then answered in this last story across the line. Uh, it, it was... It was Great to to do this first story that featured Ben Drake's wife because uh, a, a couple years after the publication of the the original publication of By the Balls, um, we were approached by uh, some movie producer type who wanted to option the the book. Um, they actually got so far as to have a whole big table read. Kyle Chandler was going to play Ben Drake. Um, we 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 were at the table read with Kyle who loved the book. Um, uh, but the, the the sort of big question that sort of came up is they were sort of like, you know, Ben Drake really drinks a lot, and uh, and of course Tom and I were like, really? Uh, I didn't think it's that bad, really? Yeah, uh, compared to, uh, but uh, but uh, but uh, uh, 
but a lot of people, I mean, people really were sort of like, I've read this book and I have a hangover. I mean, that's, that's kind of the feedback that we were getting. I, I do have to say that uh, rereading it 12 years hence, 15 years hence, yeah, he, he does drink a lot. Yeah, he, he drinks a little bit. Okay, so, uh, but there is a real sort of sense that, that, I mean, whether this was conscious or not, that, that there's so much about what happens in the original books that, that his wife is sort of in the... Um, sort of in the shadows, and it really motivates everything that he does, even though we've never really explicitly uh, said that. So, uh, if you're up for it, we would like to read the, the beginning of uh, this first story that uh, features uh, uh, Ben's wife, uh, right. called Fireproof. Any objections? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <clears throat> I can't even right. remember. Am I doing this? What are you? I'm, no, I'm, I'm, doing, okay, I'm doing, doing this part. And then we haven't done this in a long time, okay? So we... So this might be really, really funny, and not, <laughs> and, and not for the reasons you want it to be, or that we want it to be. Uh, all right. <clears throat> I smelled like smoke and sweat, like I usually did after a fire. My wife was used to it, as much as anyone could be, but this morning was different. She knew there was something else hanging over me, the stench of death. She kissed me. Mm, good morning. I could have kept kissing her just standing there, despite how exhausted I felt. But I knew I stunk something bad. A shower would probably be best for both of us. You're up early, I said, as I unbuttoned my shirt, got my arms out of it, and pulled the stained rib t-shirt over my head. Insomnia again. Must be the heat. She sat down at the table where she had set her coffee cup. Thought I would get up and read a bit while I waited for you. My body slumped against the bathroom door jam, partially because I didn't want to walk away from my wife while she was talking, but mostly because my muscles were ready to give up. It was a tough one, yeah? She asked. I exhaled the tension as it all came back to me. We found a body. Man in his thirties, probably. Hard to tell. He was charcoal. Well, mostly anyway. She let that hang in the air a bit. She was a firefighter's wife, well familiar with the horror stories I brought home. She didn't like them. And though I'd developed a stomach for them, I didn't like them either. Found them in a bathtub. I'd been following the burn, trying to contain it. Almost forgot the plan. Evacuate, isolate, terminate. I should have found that guy sooner. There might have been a chance. At least Kenny Shrub wasn't handling the sweep. Boy's so gung-ho about fighting fire, he can't see the details. That body would probably still be in the tub. She came over to me to rub my back, rough with ash. You were doing your job. I'm sure you did everything you could. My job is to put out fires, and I put it out. That won't make me sleep any easier. Plus, I had a bad run-in with the police. These two detectives did the most ridiculous... I pinched the bridge of my nose with my hand like I was trying to deflate a giant beach ball. You know, never mind. I laid too much of the, of the job on you. Get back to your book and your coffee. I'm going to let a bunch of water pour over me. Wash away the sadness and stress of Testacy City. Think about Los Angeles. I smiled. Was that really only last week? Christ, it feels like forever ago already. Don't let it get away. It could be ours, Benny. A new city. A new life. She looked down and pulled a strand of hair behind her ear. A new everything. The energy uh, came to me to go over and kiss her on, the on her beautiful forehead. I stumbled back into the bathroom and twisted the shower handle. The hot water came down. But I couldn't wash out the memory of those two cops. Hey, soldier, get over here. Sweat beaded up on the forehead of the meaty cop with the crew cut. It was still hot in there, even though the fire was out. I took my helmet off, went over to the plain clothes. His partner was playing the silent type, hanging back, smoking a cigarette. I addressed the loud one. I'm not a soldier. 
There's a problem. I'm happy to help you boys. Want to talk to you about this body you found. Heard you were talking to your buddies about some foul play. Why don't you give me a little bit of your story time? I remember thinking that these guys were early on the scene, and the inspector hadn't, hadn't even arrived yet. Uh, sorry if you think I'm telling tales out of school. I know I'm not the one who gets to make the call, but that guy I found in the bathtub, he looked suspicious to me. Okay, soldier, let me stop you right there. He pulled a slim wallet out of the inside pocket of his coat and flashed a badge my way, like I didn't know he was a cop. Name's Brockman. Detective Brockman. That good-looking guy behind me? That's Detective Wisnecki. Hey, when I said good-looking, that's just a choice of words. Nothing weird. Mark's not my type, are you, Mark? Brockman stuffed the wallet back into his coat, barely pausing to give Wisnecki a chance to respond, which was fine. Wisnecki had nothing to say. Anywho, let's cut to the chase. What we're looking at here is an accident. Smoke inhalation. Nasty way to die. But maybe that's a good reason not to be in a damn bathtub when your building's on fire. Ha! Look, Detective, I know it's hard to tell the condition the body's in, but I've seen more than a few like that, and I gotta say, what isn't burned looks, well, beaten. As in, severely beaten. Brockman crumpled his face in something that was probably meant to be a smile. It wasn't. That's pretty observant. What's your name? Uh, ben Drake. Drake, you a fire inspector? No. You a medical examiner? No. Then you don't know a damn thing. Repeat after me. Smoke. Inhalation. Now get the hell out of my crime scene. I had to laugh. If this is a fire and death and all are one big accident, what makes this a crime scene? Soldier, this whole town is a crime scene. <laughs> Um, so I think that uh, I also want to, I would lo love to point out that uh, one of the things that we were very uh, lucky to be able to do with the new uh, edition is uh, write an introduction uh, in which we uh, sort of go into more detail than we did just a couple minutes ago about sort of like the, the reason and the inspiration and the, the who's and why's, why's of how we started this. And uh, if, it, if, if that's only a nugget of information we start with, if you want more. <laughs> It's in the introduction. Uh, it's interesting because we really, uh, I mean, uh, as we've mentioned, I mean, we were just, we were just totally crazy uh, kids who were, you know, causing trouble left and right uh, in the publishing industry, a, a, a fun playground, uh, if there was one. Uh, but uh, weirdly enough, we really, even though a lot of our authors thought that we spent a lot more time talking about us than them, <laughs> uh, we didn't really delve into a lot of the sort of the who's and the whys of what we were doing. We were just always really focused on uh, when we were able to talk to the press, talking about the, the books that we were publishing and the great authors we were publishing. And this was a real sort of opportunity to sort of show sort of where, where our minds were at and, and what we were thinking at the time. And where we started, where we came from, like, you know, kind of how lucky we were in some respects, how bombastic we were in others. And, uh, I mean, we were young kids, and like Jim said, we just, we didn't take no for an answer from anybody. And um, at one point we realized the easiest way to get what we wanted was to do it ourselves. And that's what we um, did. Uh, and then... At the end of the book, uh, we were also extremely fortunate to uh, reach out to uh, almost 25 authors and publishers and editors that we have gotten to know over the years and ask them to uh, write a little something about the book, 
uh, about Ugly Town, about sort of you know their remembrance of what it was like back uh, 15 years ago, and uh, we are we are truly honored by those uh, contributions. Yeah, it was a, it was a very humbling experience to read these contributions and realize like the impact that Ugly Town as a company and Jim and I as individuals had upon other people. And it was something that. You know, I don't know that I quite realized, certainly when I was young and at the time, but like, you know, now reading it and reading just how people reacted to what we did and what we were able to do in the industry, it was really, it, it was touching. And I'm proud of every one of those essays. We don't still there. really believe it all, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's nice to read any, anyways. Uh, so, uh, before we ask uh, questions and, and hopefully sign some books, we wanted to read one little piece of By the Balls, the, the original novel. Um, this, uh, we, we chose this because this is a, a scene in chapter seven, five, seven? seven. chapter seven, uh, in which Ben Drake goes to this bar, the seedy bar. They're short chapters. Yeah, well, we're not reading the whole chapter. Uh, uh, <laughs> goes to this seedy bar called Van Winkle's, and, uh, and the sort of joke is, as you can see, we're drinking Old Granddad, so that's Ben Drake's favorite drink. Um, and so he goes to this bar, and he orders old granddad, and the guy behind the, ba the bar says that we only serve one bourbon here, it's called Van Winkle's, and, and, he, and Ben Drake is just like, whatever, I, just give it to me, because uh, all he really cares about is drinking. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the funny thing is that when we, when we sort of came up with that, we were really sort of like, like is, is that going to be funny? It's like anybody, I mean, you know, I guess it's like, you know, it's, you know the, get it, the bar is called Van Winkle's, they're serving Van Winkle's. And there's, there's Van Winkle murals, like, you know, the, uh, the guy that slept for 80 years, that old folktale. Lo and behold, though, 15 years later, uh, uh, Pappy Van Winkle's is in fact the most hard to find uh, in-demand bourbon on the market right now. I, I've heard people selling it on eBay for like $3,000 a bottle. Uh, <laughs> and so, it, it should uh, be a $150 bottle of uh, I mean, yeah, tops. but not, right. yeah. But 3,000. Not, not so great. So, uh, so we were very prescient. Yes, <laughs> yes. Only in our liquor uh, knowledge. Right. Nothing right. else, nothing else really. Uh, Only I would have seen this ebook thing coming. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead. All right. Uh, although I have to find it. Where are we at? Uh, 314. Yes. Uh, so yeah, this is a scene that starts right after Ben gets his, uh, gets his Van Winkles. This is the bartender talking. <laughs> Look, man, I'm just paying to pour drinks. You want answers, you've got to talk to the boss. Yeah, where can I find him? In the back booth. He jerked, oh, sorry. Uh, he jerked his thumb over his shoulder as he popped the cap off a bud. That's where you can always find him. I glanced toward the back of the tavern. Pretty crowded back there. Who am I looking for? Walter Wilson. He's a little guy. Thanks. I left the guy a tip and made my way through the packed club. It was a nice crowd. No one went out of their way to let me by. At the back of the bar, ten people crowded around a large table, listening to a raw-throated voice scratch out a story. All of the listeners were typical of the bowling type I'd spent time around today. All of them, that is, but one. She was a blonde bombshell, the kind you see in the movies. Her skin was too perfect. Underneath her flowing blonde hair, she had large, ruby-red lips over unbelievably white teeth and blue eyes that held a vacant stare. She, she wore a black sleeveless top that showed off her ample bosom and a short black skirt that showed off her alabaster legs. The storyteller sat in her lap, 
a hood ornament to the blonde's mannequin. He was a hatchet-faced midget. His dyed black hair, slick with pomade, combed straight back over his skull. His ears were large and grew so close to his head they seemed pinned together from behind. His right hand was missing its thumb and forefinger. I guessed this guy for Walter. He talked fast and gesticulated wildly, keeping his audience enraptured as he spun his yarn. I lit a cigar, determined that I came in somewhere about the middle of the story. So, Dvorkin steps up to the line, ball in hand. He pauses and looks down the lane. A full set of pins waits for his smoke-gray pearl outrage. He just bowled 11 strikes in a row. If he got this strike, he'd have a 300 game. But remember, so far, Rito had bowled a perfect game too and was riding high with nine strikes. He paused while he surveyed his audience. And Rito is a better bowler. Dvorkin began his approach. It was perfect, right down to his follow-through. The ball made a beautiful curve and hugged the right side of the lane, kissing the lip of the gutter. At just the right moment, it swung to the left and hit the head pin in that sweet spot. Pins went flying. And when the table dropped, there was nothing left for it to pick up. Walter stopped for a dramatic sip of beer. The entire table followed suit. This Walter had juice. It was a 300 game. But Dvorkin only got a smattering of applause. Another sip, the blonde kissed the top of his head, then he resumed. Now it was Rito's 10th frame. The crowd cheered wildly. He stepped up to the return, rolled his shoulders, and crossed himself. He was quite religious, you know. Everyone around the table nodded. They knew. He hefted his ball and focused somewhere beyond the pins. Rito had been bowling for a long time, and it was mostly reflex for him. His first ball of the 10th was a solid strike. He turned and bowed to the crowd as they cheered. He wiped his hands, then his ball, and did a quick pray before he quickly rolled another strike. His 11th. One more strike, and it was a tie game. Now, the way the bet was set up, Walter explained, the odds were stacked against Dvorkin. If the game was a tie, Rito still won. Dvorkin had complained about that, but that's what happens when you challenge a champ. Even Rito was good. Sorry. Even though Rito was good, he was still worried. He waited for his ball to come up the return, drying the sweat off his hands with the blower. He wiped his face and his hands and then his ball. Once more, he crossed himself and stepped up to the line, his fire-red primal rage in his hand. He stood a long time, just staring down the lane. When he moved... It was sudden. The ball was out of his hand, headed toward the pins with a tr his trademark arc. It hit dead on. He threw the ball with a lot of spin, so we always got great pin action. This time was no exception. Those pins went flying every which way. He missed it, didn't he? One chubby-faced guy blurted out. Walter pinned him with a steely eye. You telling this story, Larry? No, 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 Walter. Larry apologized, his hands in front of him defensively. I just got excited, that's all. Yeah, well... Just keep your mouth shut. Walter scanned the crowd for any other excitable types. Now, where was I? Great pin action, baby. The blonde got him back on track. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Thanks, Sugar Plum. He paused, taking a moment to recreate the tension that had built up before the interruption. Those pins were flying every which way. A strike for sure. We all thought it. Everyone was up, cheering, screaming Rito's name. But someone, I don't remember who... Shouted, look! And pointed down the lane. Oh, yeah, yeah, and pointed down the lane. And suddenly everyone stopped cheering. There was dead silence. There wasn't a pin standing. Not a whole pin, anyway. 
The seven pin had split in two right down the middle, and only half of it was up. I swear to God, everyone in the place just stared. Well, they had to get the judges in on this one, and they ruled that Rito had bowled not a 300 game, as everyone expected, but a 299 and a half. Walter finished his beer in one gulp, slamming the empty mug on the table. The slightest smirk colored his face. The story was over. I don't believe it, Larry cried out, looking for support. He found none. Too bad, tough guy. Walter's face was getting a little red. Because, just, because that's just how Diamond Dan Rita lost the bet and fell from grace. No one's heard from him since. Let's, let's stop there. That's good. <laughs> Not that we can't monopolize a mic, which we love to do, uh, but does anybody have any questions? Comments? Criticisms? <laughs> Prognostications? That's a good question. question. You know, I, don't, I, don't, even, I know. don't even know. <laughs> How much does the book uh, cost? 1695, yes. 1695. <laughs> yes. Um, I okay. Um, thank you for that question. Uh, after the first two books that we wrote, By the Balls and Five Shots and a Funeral, which are in this collection, um, we got the interest of an editor at Dark Horse Comics uh, who asked us to write uh, comics based on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which we, uh, which we tried out for. Uh, and met with Joss and his team and and then ended up writing those comics for about two years, two and a half yeah, years. I think 17 total issues, I think. Uh, including an illustrated novel, which we also did together. Um, and, and I would say it is very different. Uh, I, I think that overall the collaboration was the same. It, it was the same kind of idea of we would, we would sort of usually get together and sort of try to bang out some ideas and then go to our corners and, and write. Uh, but, but comics is a very, very different kind of beast. Yeah, and it certainly, because not only like, you know, so we're used to collaborating together uh, in, in fiction and writing, but then we're inviting, you know, at least one, if not two or three other collaborators into the project at the same time. And, and then we've got, uh, Buffett was a licensed project, so we've got the licensed people like kind of overseeing what we're doing, which was also, so it wasn't so much that we had to write for each other at that point. Um, we had to kind of write, we had to, the guy who was drawing for us was a guy named Cliff Richard. Um, was it Richard or Richards? I can't remember. One's a, one's a pop star and one's a... <laughs> um, we uh, were not writing for the pop yeah. star. And he, uh, he, he didn't speak English. Uh, he was uh, <laughs> Brazilian, I think. And he was a fantastic illustrator. But, you know, we tried this kind of conversational style with him where, where in the script we would actually engage him and say, hey, Cliff, try this out. And our editor was like, yeah, you know, Cliff's not getting that stuff. You, you got to be a little more straight up because um, he doesn't really understand English. So, so that, that kind of changed the, the dynamic a little bit. And so we, um, uh, it was a little more workmanlike as far as like how to describe the scenes to Cliff, but he still did a great job. Um, and then there was also like an inker and then a, a colorist that came in. So it was, it was a, a pretty good collaboration. Uh, it was it was hard to write for a licensed product because that not like, that we, we don't love 20th Century Fox. <laughs> 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 I mean, right, because they're I mean they've got a vested interest in in protecting their character. So it was this they would you know they would come back with us and say like well. That really wouldn't happen, and so then we'd have to. Kind <laughs> they of go didn't back like the forward. fact that we had Dawn smoking. <laughs> right, the, right. They were really that. pretty upset about that. Yeah. We were like, "Hey, she's a kid, rebellious teenager," you know. So, uh, 
But yeah, it was. Um, it, it is a radically different process. Uh, is there another question? Um, can you talk a little bit about, maybe you've already talked about this topic, but um, the initial publication of By the Balls um, had the uh, fictitious author overlay. Ah, yes. On the 15th edition, you Yeah, we weren't fooling anybody. <laughs> um, we actually got, we actually got a, uh, this was, this was not, uh, it wasn't before email, but it was, uh, I don't know if it was an email or, or like we, we got, like there was a published article in I think the comics journal that was sort of like, they uncovered us as the authors of, of By the Balls and we're like, but our names are on the cover. Like, is that... Some some crack journalism there, guys. Yeah, and uh, I mean, what Jim talked about earlier with the fact that we had a, a kind of, we were trying to write the great American novel, we were trying to write a larger kind of piece of fiction that wasn't working out, and so we kind of, and that that was the story of this fictional Dashiell Loveless, and so when we, we dialed it back, and the, the this, you know, wrote by the balls that kind of did the whole, like, setting us free moment, that was, uh, we decided to keep Dashiell's name on the cover to kind of enhance that that pulp artifact. Well, yeah. that's exactly it. I mean, we were going for an artifact. We were, you know, like, e even if even if by the time that the book was actually published, I think that we had already sort of walked away from that bigger idea. But we really liked the idea that, that w what we were doing was not just a book. It was it was part of a bigger world that was Dashiell Loveless's world. And, and this was his book, uh, although we were not so... I'm egotistical that we didn't put our names on that cover, <laughs> but uh, uh, it, but you know we, we 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 liked the idea that there was this mysterious this character who 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 is really the author uh, that that it, because ultimately it's sort of his story. It's like you know and uh, and then to answer the question that was that was asked, I, I, we sort of felt like we, we continued that with Five Shots in a Funeral. I mean, even though at that point we had definitely dropped any conceit of doing this sort of bigger project, which we were calling the Red Hat, um, but we were. We're still sort of, we, this is just the kind of anal people that we are, we were sort of dialed into this idea that like, okay, the story of Dashiell Loveless is that he writes this book called By the Balls, it's not very good, and, uh, and he can't come up with another idea for a novel. Uh, and so, and so then he sort of goes into this thing. And so we, we were sort of like, after we published By the Balls, we had all these people from the industry who were sort of like, when's the next book? And we were like, but there is no next book. This is, he, this is it. He's done. He's done. Yeah. What are so, you talking so about? Had, what are you talking about? So we had to go backwards. I mean, the, the, uh, <laughs> the conceit always was that, uh, Mr. Loveless was a fantastic short story writer and he couldn't Very quite good. hack it when he made it to the jump to novels and he just got lucky and he couldn't, you know, um, so... So we would, that's, uh, that's why f the five shot stories chronologically take place before By the Ball. But overall, I, I, I think that we felt that, uh, that 15 years later, that sort of conceit sort of like had run its course. Uh, and, and very specifically, the, the introduction addresses Dashiell Loveless and, and what our plans were and why we sort of, why we held on to, to that idea and, and why we eventually abandoned it. And, uh, and so I think that we, it just sort of felt like it was time. Um, any other questions? Yes, yes, sir. sir. Well, the second, uh, second uh, reading that you read was that that was way into the book, and it was already chapter seven. Right. How how would it be like almost to the end of the book? Then it was just chapter seven. Well, that's an excellent question, my friend. <laughs> and I'll answer that because um, this is actually a collection of a book called By the Balls and then a book 
called Five Shots in a Funeral and then a bunch of other stuff. So the story that's by the balls doesn't actually start until page 274. So right here. So this little tab here is what we read. And so it's just right at the beginning of the book. So all this stuff is stuff that happened before another book. So it's kind of like a bunch of stories stacked on top of one another. This shows the difference between Tom and I because I was really about to tell him that chapter three was really long. <laughs> uh, and it's really good, but it's really long. Uh, um, I think it is also in, in, in sort of total shilling uh, mode, uh, although I'll tell you a good anecdote about this, uh, it is worth mentioning that, uh, that the book has many, many illustrations by a good friend of ours named Paul Pope, um, who did these illustrations for the original edition, and uh, sort of like this. Um, he did a number of illustrations for By the Balls. He did the original cover for By the Balls. Uh, he also came back and did the cover for Five Shots at a Funeral and did a whole bunch of illustrations for that as well. Um, uh, this is the kind, this is, you know, imagine if you will, 1998. Um, this is sort of what we were thinking. We were sort of like, remember hey. Dial -up? Yeah, remember, yeah. <laughs> we are like, hey, I got an idea. <laughs> you know, and Tom's like, what? You know, because he was probably already drunk. And I was like, Let's check this out. Let's write this book. We'll get Paul Pope to draw the, the, some pictures and the illustrations. He's famous. He's way more famous than us. And, and he still is. Yeah, he still is. <laughs> but, but, oh, but get this. Like, then we'll sell it to the comic book stores. Like, he's huge there, right? Like, we'll, and then. We'll make all of our money back, all of the money that we're going to pay for this on our credit cards, right? And just because the direct market to sell comic <laughs> books actually has a better business model than bookstores. Just saying. Well, that's because the way that that works for, for us former publishers is the comic book stores will buy books and then not, not be allowed to return them. So when you buy a book, uh, if you buy 1,000 copies, if you buy 10,000 copies, if you buy 100,000 copies, you buy them. So it doesn't matter if they sit in long boxes or on the shelves, um, then you know, the authors can laugh at, you know, at their royalty checks. Uh, however, you know, bookstores, the way that they work uh, is that uh, they're sort of like almost on commission, or not, not commission, consignment, and they, you know, they're here for a time, and if you don't buy them, which I strongly suggest that you do, um, then they, get, they can be returned to the publisher if the, uh, if, the, if the bookseller so sees it fit because the real estate is very valuable. So we thought, like, this is a no-brainer, man. We get Paul Pope's fan to buy these books, and we're just in, totally in. And, and let me just do a small aside here. <laughs> I, I would like to say that um, while we, when we were doing this, independent bookstores were fantastic about n only ordering what they needed and not returning things. Not so much the larger chains. So yes. small bookstores... The way to go. They deserve yes. your money. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, in fact, the large, you know, I would say the big reason why Ugly Town is no longer in business is because we had two consecutive distributors go out of business. Uh, and then, you know, what that meant is that large, you know, chains like Barnes and Nobles would, would send them back all these books and they would then owe that money back to you know, back t to them, and then they just went out of business and left yeah. us with, uh, you know, yeah, large was, amounts of debt. It was a mess. <laughs> uh, but uh, the sad the sad part of the story is, so we, we, we got these beautiful, beautiful Paul Pope illustrations. They are really spectacular. We solicited it 
into all the comic book stores and we sold 338 copies. <laughs> uh, uh, Rolling in dough. Yes. So then we were like, maybe there's something else that we should be doing. <laughs> so, and, thus, and thus launched our publishing career. And there we are. There we are. So any other last questions, questions before we sign books? Yes, little girl down there. That's a very good question. The question was, it's by the balls, but what kind of ball is it? Uh, and, uh, an excellent question. It's an excellent question. And I will have to say that we may have not stressed this enough tonight that the original title was By the Balls, A Bowling Alley Murder Mystery. So the answer to the question is, in fact, the ball is a bowling ball. But I will say that for the longest time, almost up until, I would, I would say, a week before we went to press with By the Balls, there was a point where we talked about the you know, PBA, Pro Bowlers Association, and we referred to it as the PGA. <laughs> <laughs> and only by sheer chance did we manage, I think you caught it. We're not bowlers. I mean, I know this is really hard. And, and, I, and I really think that, like, we, we read this excerpt from By the Balls totally deceiving you. That's the most bowling that is in that book. We, we know nothing about bowling. We yeah. are not bowlers. Everything we know uh, about bowling came from a guy named Mouse who worked the back, the, who worked the mechanics at the, uh, what's that, Jewel, what is that, in uh, Santa Monica? Bay City Lanes, yeah, the, right? Bay, that, Bay Shore Lanes. Bay Shore, Bay Shore Lanes. Lanes in Santa Monica. He gave us a tour of the back of their, the guts of the bowling alley. Amazingly, we walked into the bowling alley and was sort of like, hey, we're writing a book about a bowling alley. Anybody can show us the back? And, and they were like, that's the guy Mouse. You need to talk to and we're like, okay, okay, let's go talk to Mouse. And Mouse, Mouse uh, had to be like 6'3 and 280 pounds. He was a massive man, and I, I don't know how he got the name Mouse. And he, and, and he loved the back of the bowling alley, this guy. He did. He did. My favorite quote from Mouse is, this here is what you call technology. <laughs> All right, any last questions? Yes, sir. In terms of like Mouse's vocation, this here is what we call technology, and, and how you and how you mentioned ebooks, uh, and how much the publishing industry has changed since you guys started. Ugly, um, if if you guys had started this project today, and you were sitting there, you, were, you probably you probably wouldn't start a publishing company. What do you think you would do today in terms of the same type of project? Uh, that's a good question. I actually like the the ebook model. I mean, the fact that the time to mark. I mean, one of the there, there are many frustrating things about publishing books. I, and I will say that I actually prefer paper books over ebooks. I mean, I just like the way they feel, like reading them. Maybe that's a function of my age when I grew up. But you know, I, I also I also enjoy ebooks for the the ease of the convenience and the accessibility. But for publishing, like. One of the frustrating parts that we had to deal with, and certainly even happened with this, like this book has been printed for like two months. I mean, I've had, I've had a box of these books in my living room for two months, as my wife can attest. She's been tripping over them. Um, but uh, the time to market is, it's six months. I mean, you've got to, you've got to promote it. You've got to push it out there. You've got to talk about it. You've got to get press. You've got to get people to write about it. The time to market for e-books is days. I mean, and, and that's testament to, you know, you can go on Amazon and you can see a, like a zillion books. And, and some of the, most of them aren't really that good. I mean, they're not edited well. I mean, we had the fortune of having people who actually edited our book for us. That uh, was nice. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's a certain part of me that would think that, yeah, if we did start this today, would we go all ebook? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, certainly something worth considering. But it would be, 
an easier road than you know racking up. and 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 also there there's the cost factor too i mean the cost for printing a book is you know, it's it's five to ten grand, depending how many how many you publish, um, and that's a it's an investment that you've got to wait to get a return on. With an ebook, it's, I mean, and I'm I'm oversimplifying this, and I know that, but you can push a button and it's printed, and you can upload it to whatever format you want to upload it to, and you can start making money right away. So, you know, yeah, there, there's, I mean, a certain, I there's something attractive about it, but at the same time, I do like physical books. I mean, start, part of that sort of, uh, in, as he said, oversimplification is the fact that both with, with Ugly Town originally and, and this hypothetical if we would do this now, uh, you know, we, we were you know, I guess the word is megalomaniacs. It's like we design, we did everything. We designed the books. Uh, we prepared it for print. We, uh, you know, we then did the printing. We, you know, we did all the marketing. And, and so you know that I mean that's our time the, I mean those are hard costs but it's just sort of like it, like the moment that you start to go out and sort of like have to pay for storage or pay for printing or pay for this you know those are costs that are that are sort of inescapable but I really think that maybe my the my answer to the, the question is that I I don't know what we would be doing now sort of in you know if you can magically transpose like what we would be doing 15 years later as punk rock green haired kids. Um, but I feel like uh, at the heart we would be doing the same thing that we did then, in it, which is in many ways the same thing we're doing now. All we really want to do is tell stories. Like, like we just want to, we just want to entertain people, you know, and whether that's, whether that's books, whether that's comics, you know, whether it's drinking in, at the bar and sort of, you know, telling stories, like that's what makes us happy. Uh, and the spirit of Ugly Town was, was clearly not a money-making, like, oh my god, this is so good, publishing, who would have thought of this? Uh, it was, it was, if we can figure this out somewhat, and then we can find other writers who were like us, who, who also loved to tell stories, uh, that 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 we could form a union that was greater than 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 all of us individually, uh, and I and I really think that that's that is the legacy of Ugly Town, um, and and it's something that we are very very proud of. Absolutely. So thank you very very much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.